Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On today's show, actress, producer, and director Olivia Wilde. Known for her roles on House and in films including Tron Legacy and Her, and for directing the critically acclaimed film Booksmart, Wilde talks about creating work in the midst of a global pandemic. Because right now we're in the middle of the tornado, and I think it'll be up to artists to illustrate this tornado so later we can say, like, we lived through this together. Her transition into directing. If we were honest about this business and about how collaborative it is, and that there is no one person who can do everything, then I think more people would be included into the process. More women, more people of color, more differently abled people. Like you don't have to be a superhero to be a director. Decentering the queerness in her feature film directorial debut, Booksmart. I enjoyed the opportunity to embrace this notion that no one in the film was overly defined in any way and certainly not by their sexual identity and her upcoming gig directing an untitled female-centered marvel film it's really intense because people care you know what people care about people care about superhero movies that's what <laughs> that's what i said to jason the night that that came out i walked into the kitchen i was like i know what people care about now if we can get people to care about the 2020 election like they care about superhero movies we will be in good shape shut up evan Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am Evan Ross Katz, and I am joined by my brand new producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, just before I give you a formal introduction, for all of the Alden Peters stands out there, Alden and I have parted ways with regards to this podcast, but not with regards to our friendship. Uh, schedules just did not allow for him to continue on, but he will appear on a later episode of this season to promote an upcoming project he's working on. And I just want to encourage all of the Alden stands out there, and I know you are many. He is still on social media, and he is still very much within the Shut Up Evan family. With that said, I am super duper excited to have Matt on board. Matt, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sure, I'm happy to. I'll give you the short, short version since uh, people like to joke on the internet that I have a thousand podcasts, uh, so I won't give the whole rundown. But I am a DJ, podcaster, streamer on Twitch, video game enthusiast, music nerd. I've been doing a variety of podcasts, producing, recording, and hosting over the last decade. And, you know, I have a lot of variety of interests. And I used to do a music podcast. That's how I got started, where me and my co-host would do an album review every single week that became untenable and so we parted ways animicably but and that archive is still available called crash chords but since then i started my own interview series called crash chords autographs i have two video game podcasts reignite and fun and games as well as a tv and movie podcast called screen snark and i am ever growing my projects as i work on edit on a bunch of other podcasts on the podcast network i'm on and yeah i'm just a big old bisexual nerd who loves to share his thoughts on all things in pop culture i love that and i and i absolutely love a bisexual nerd. <laughs> me too me too i also love myself a bisexual nerd but that's enough about me this show is about you uh my dear evan what no it's about us it's about us <laughs> um what have you been up to between season one and season two 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, season one was so much fun and there was a lot of great insight that we gleaned from season one to take into season two. So in the interim, I have moved out of the city to the country for the time being. My boyfriend and I found a house in Obernburg, New York, which is kind of, it's an obscure part of the Catskills. I believe it's like probably like a population of like 200. I now live on a farm. I am literally recording this, looking out the window at cows and horses and donkeys. And uh, it is a completely, different life it is much quieter much more solitary and we're going to be out here my boyfriend and I through the end of October so I've just been sort of doing life as a country person I mean I go and literally I get my berries and my eggs down the street at a little like there's a little outpost on the side of the street that I stop at and you literally just leave money in the bucket. I mean, it's literally just, it could not be a bigger 180 from the city, but I was missing this podcast. I really was missing it. And I'm really, really glad to be back with season two and to continue doing the work that we were doing and have a brand new slate of guests and to get into these meaningful conversations that we've been having. And I just missed being in conversation with so many of the listeners. And it heartens me so much to see the excitement that some of you have shared on social media about the return of the podcast and it's just good to be back i do want to note we are going to go to a bi-weekly format moving forward so you are listening to this episode on september 15th two weeks from now we will have episode two with shay coulee and i think it's just i mean the schedule matt you know this you do a lot of podcasts it's fucking hard and I think one thing that we learned in season one was we would like wrap an episode and we would be so excited it would go up and then all of a sudden it would be like oh okay time to work on the next episode and so we're trying to create just a little bit more breathing room and the ability to really finesse each episode and make it what we're looking for and then also have a moment to breathe before we get into the next episode not feel so rushed so I'm excited to be doing this new season but to do it at a pace that feels a little bit more tenable for all and I'm so excited for this particular episode where we have the fabulous Olivia Wilde. Yeah, I I can't believe like it's just it's one of those experiences where I'm kind of blown away by the person in a way that you even just forget who she is. Like you're just in the moment. It was it was really a great and fun chat. Totally. I I it's it's surprising how normal she is and I, and I know it's not it shouldn't be surprising that a human being is normal and I know right. and I don't mean to sort of put her on some sort of pedestal but she's a very famous person and she's very busy and it's really remarkable that she took an hour to be with us and not only that but like to be so present within the interview yeah she was really kind and you know I got to ask a nerdy music question that she was so gung-ho about which you'll hear in the episode it's just it's fun when people want to play and you know they want to do that give and take they don't go in with any resistance they just want to be a part of the experience absolutely the thing I want to know though before we get into today's episode is how did you and Olivia get connected this is a big get as they would say and so I'm curious how that connection happened yeah it's really strange one day I woke up and I saw that Olivia Wilde was following me I had no idea why and I DM'd her just to say what an honor because it's an honor and she responded with what I now know is that uh, signature Olivia Wilde sense of humor by saying that I am the mother or it, she was quoting that famous Oprah uh, interview where she talked about her friendship with Gail, Gail King, and she says, she is the mother I've never had. She is the sister everybody would want. I do not know a better person. I do not know. And so Olivia, like jokingly, said that about me. And from there, um, this sisterhood began between her and I. No, I just, I mean, like, no, we just sort of began this um, fabulous Instagram friendship. I mean, what I've found and I've talked about on the podcast before is just so often the people that you wouldn't expect to even be looking at their DMs, do look at their DMs and, and do respond and you can sort of form what I find to be authentically meaningful friendships over this app that is Instagram. And I think given the circumstance that so many people are staying inside and are perhaps a little bit more plugged in over the last couple of months, it's way easier to access people who I think previously just were super busy, whose lives have slowed down a bit. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, I'm not, we're not best friends. We don't have each other's phone numbers by any measure, but we do talk <laughs> from time to time when various projects come up, which leads me to say one of the projects that we talk about in this interview is a new movie she's directing called Don't Worry Darling. Yes. And we taped this interview like a couple of weeks ago. And in that time, the interview has already gone out of date because you're going to hear in the episode where we talk about the film and announce the cast and include Shia LaBeouf as a member of the cast. Shia LaBeouf has dropped out of the film because of scheduling conflict and has been replaced by, and this was just announced, by none other than Harry Styles and like 
what a coup. What a coup. Yeah, it's really exciting. Uh, he was great on SNL. I love his music. It's cool to see what he's going to do in this movie since it sounds like it's really going to push his acting chops. But yeah, it's funny how we record something two weeks ago and now all of a sudden we're already out of date. It's insane. And literally, I mean, you're going to hear in the episode as well, but we talk about the new Marvel movie that Olivia is directing. And it's just like we had scheduled Olivia to be on the podcast for the premiere before the announcement about the Marvel film, before the Harry Styles casting news, and Olivia really just is the gift that keeps giving because she just keeps making headlines. And uh, thank goodness, I'm so grateful. And I'm really excited for people to listen to this interview and get to know Olivia. I think there's a lot to glean about who she is and how she lives her life and her generosity of spirit. But one thing I particularly love about Olivia, and I think comes through in so much of this discussion, is her sense of humor and her just general lighthearted nature that I think just makes her such a great conversationalist. I think sometimes the people that I really love and admire don't always translate to the most interesting of interviews just because not everyone is, you know, not everyone loves to gab. And thankfully, Olivia doesn't. And so what a great first guest. And so without any further ado, I think let's get into our interview with the great Olivia Wilde. Awesome. Let's do it. Where to even begin with this one? She is an actress, an independent spirit award-winning director, a producer, a mother, an activist, and overall badass. Her acting credits include Alex Kelly on the teen drama The O.C., Remy 13 Hadley on the medical drama House, Disney's Tron Legacy, In Time, Jon Favreau's Cowboys and Aliens, Butter, The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, Ron Howard's Rush, Spike Jones's Her, The Lazarus Effect, Meadowland, the HBO series Vinyl, Life Itself, and Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell. Her 2019 feature film directing debut, Booksmart, earned her an Independent Spirit Award for Best Feature Film. The film appeared on 68 critics' top 10 lists and holds an approval rating of 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Quote, in virtually every scenario, director Wilde and the team of screenwriters serve up the material in a fresh and original manner, wrote critic Richard Roper in his review for the Chicago Sun-Times. Next up, Wilde will be directing Don't Worry Darling, a psychological thriller starring Shia LaBeouf, Florence Pugh, Chris Pine, and Dakota Johnson. Most recently, it was announced that Wilde was tapped to direct an untitled, female-centered Marvel movie at Sony. After Wilde quote-tweeted the news with the spider emoji, many have speculated that film will be Spider-Woman. She's encouraging, inquisitive, spirited, book smart, street smart, overall smart, hilarious, tenacious, and I know we're not supposed to harp on women's looks, but it would be criminal not to include stunning. We have to, and we must. She is the incomparable Olivia Wilde. Olivia. Hi. I got to start by asking the hardest hitting of questions for this interview. Wikipedia is not sure if you're a pescatarian, a vegetarian, or a vegan. And I just feel like let's start things out by confirming which of the three. Let's clear the fucking air because people want to know. Oh my God. I've gone through so many versions of this, but I now I'm just an everything Aryan, like shove it in my body so I can keep surviving Aryan. And that is not Aryan, Tarian. That's a best, better. (laughs) But I think, (laughs) but I think it's so funny because there is this like real identity politics that comes with food and it, it is no joke. I was vegan for a long time and there is like a like a vegan Illuminati and they're very intense. And I had just sort of been like, inducted into that group sort of like I could tell that it was like I I didn't quite make it but someone was like let her in it's fine we'll let her in she's vegan and I was just like hey new friends and then had a kid and got hungry and wanted a cheeseburger and then it was like I was out of there so the problem is I'm not dogmatic about anything it doesn't work for me to live by strict rules so I'm an outlaw, baby, is what I'm really saying. It's funny what you say about like that Illuminati-like quality, because I feel like for a lot of vegans, it's like part of the mission is recruit more vegans. It is. So it's like whenever you engage with someone, it's like suddenly the conversation becomes, not only am I vegan, but here's how, how I could make you yes. a vegan to better your life. And I was a part of that. I was really like, I, my favorite thing to do was to make food for you that would you would love and then I'd be like ha ha guess what right and I did that for a long time and now that I look back <laughs> I think back like was anyone really enjoying my mushroom bolognese probably not 
But I did have one experience. I was making this movie called Butter, which is this teeny tiny movie that I actually love so much. And Alicia Silverstone is in it. Oh, we know Butter. Oh. <laughs> and Alicia Silverstone, who I love so much, was in that movie. And she had a, she knows, obviously, she's the vegan queen. She is, she knows her shit. And she was there with uh, her assistant, who was also a vegan chef. And I was like, buddy, tell me, I want to know more because I'm just here like scooping my tofu. And she's like, no, I will show you the light. And those two months of eating with Alicia Silverstone was the best I've ever eaten, looked, felt in my life. Like if we could all live with Alicia Silverstone, we should be vegan. But most of us don't. And therefore it's harder to upkeep. But like when they do it right, it is, (laughs) do it right. It's the best. It is, it is actually like, it's everything they say it is and more, but it's really hard to be that good at it. You know, I always say we should all be living with Alicia Silverstone. <laughs> yes, yes, one day. I wanted to ask you, as someone who has to be interviewed a lot for her chosen mm-hmm. vocation, do you like being interviewed? Mm. I like it more now that I really like what I do, that I really feel good about where I am in my life. And now it's like, there's no bullshit. There's no lying. Like interviews are great when you don't have to lie. And I think that I now feel like I have a lot to say about what I do that I'm excited to talk about. And the process is something that interests me more. And I don't have to sit there being like, oh, you know, like, what a journey it's been to play this character. And I love the hair and makeup. And I love like pretending that it's so fulfilling when for so many years, I felt like unchallenged in a way that made those interviews a bit of a performance. And I always found my way because I love people. I love talking to people. So I always found my way to enjoy that part of work. But I do genuinely love it more now that like, I don't know, I've, I've lived more life. I have more to say. And I, and I have learned that these conversations aren't just about like self-promotion. There's actually something to be gained from the conversation. Like, mm. I, I guess what I'm saying is I listen more in interviews now. Whereas when I was younger, it was like, Ooh, like planning the next thing what's the next like clever answer where now I'm like oh no we're just talking it's okay if I don't talk the whole time even though right now I quite literally am no I, that makes so much sense you know it's funny last night so my boyfriend and I are currently like binge watching Survivor from you are start. gay yeah I'm sorry yeah <laughs> we gotta end this we gotta end this we gotta go. Go. yes yeah, I, yes I am yeah. um I'm homosexual. I know. Okay. I know. Right. My voice gives you I'm a heterosexual vibe. I understand. <laughs> but so we're binge watching Survivor. We're up to season 12. But anyway, in the middle of it last night, all of a sudden, I was like, I started to get nervous for today. And I was like, oh my gosh, like blah, blah, blah. And then, but then I said to myself, it's like, just choose excitement. And so I'm curious, like, what, when you have those feelings, because you've been in a lot of situations, especially when you're in the directing chair, when like the room is yours, how do you yeah. sort of contend with the emotion of, of fright, fright, of being scared. Right. Yeah, I gave you a fright. <laughs> How do you contend with sort of feeling apprehension about something and being able to sort of quell that? Well, I think it's exactly what you just said. You reassigned the emotion. You realized your own ability to control what your emotion would be. And I think that's also something that I've learned. It's channeling it into something proactive. There's this awesome Buddhist adage that I always like to use I'm not a Buddhist I don't want Wikipedia to panic because it's not in there I enjoy it I dabble I dabble in the Buddhism but there's a thing that I always love about transforming emotions where if you remove the ego from anger you're left with determination and if you remove the ego from jealousy you're left with admiration and you can kind of go through that process with a lot of different feelings and once I learned about that I was like oh man it's so much more in our control than we realize so fear is actually a really valuable, proactive emotion if you can take the ego out of it and see it as like energy. And I think it's necessary. Whenever I did theater, I thought like, wow, if we didn't feel the fear, we wouldn't have the adrenaline to make it through just to survive the show. And when you start feeling that fear dip when you're on like, oh, I don't know, like month three of a Broadway run and you're like, I'm not scared. These people don't scare me. And your energy dips and you go see those shows and you can feel that the mm-hmm. actors are not afraid and therefore kind of low on the adrenaline. So yeah. reassigning the meaning of it, like fear is not a bad thing. Fear is fuel. I love it. Uh, that's awesome. And even that talk of theater just makes me really miss the experience of getting oh, to see live theater. Do you know- 2021. It, oh my, 2021, right? I mean- 
isn't this the longest? It's definitely the longest Broadway's ever shut down, or all of all of theater. And it's going to be so strange. Like, what will? Ha- I'm really curious. I'm really curious what the business will be like. If it, wh- who, what theaters will survive, and whether audiences will come back, or whether it'll change the audience. Like, it'll change yeah. it away from tourism and subscribers to a different kind of yeah. support system. You know, it's interesting because it's like the theatrical model as it existed past tense as it existed Mm -hmm. uh, was sort of in a precarious position to begin with you know we saw this kind of over-reliance on turning films into musicals or just intellectual properties versus original musicals I'm curious moving into 2021 if the hunger for original material and I'm not shitting on all movies that get made into musicals some of them are fantastic but I'm just wondering if that hunger for original musicals will sort of increase and we'll see this like um, outpouring of creativity hopefully I think so because people will need to contextualize this experience with storytelling. Like we are going through something and I don't think we'll really understand it until we're at the point where we are reading, watching, listening to stories that have contextualized it for us. Because right now we're in the middle of the tornado and I think it'll be up to artists to illustrate this tornado so later we can say like, we lived through this together. Absolutely. And it's wild. So I think a lot of original content will come out of it. And I'm, I'm hopeful that there is a community to support that and an industry to support that. So speaking of original content, on August 19th, Deadline ran the following story. Olivia Wilde tapped to direct untitled female-centered Marvel movie at Sony. You quote tweeted the story on Twitter, adding a spider emoji, which has led many to believe you are directing a Spider Woman film. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, realizing mom is likely the word on details. Is there anything you can tell us about this film? It can be the smallest morsel of a nugget. All I can say is that this is by far the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me because not only do I feel like I get to tell a story that god it's like listen to me trying to avoid kevin feige's pellet gun i'm like (laughs) but i I hear he's everywhere i hear he's just everywhere between yeah but i what i really do want to say about it is like we are seeing this incredible influx of female directors and storytellers getting to take hold of this genre of the superhero space and infuse it with their own perspective. So not only do I get to tell the story as a director, but I get to develop this story. And that was what made it so incredible for me. And and I get to do it with the aforementioned Katie Silberman, who she and I love to do all sorts of things together. But, you know, our love started with Booksmart and to know that we went from telling a story about female friendship in high school to this other stratosphere now it feels super exciting. But I, I, I'm just honored to be amongst this like wave of women who are just showing up and saying like, we are not only gonna step in and try to tell the story like men do, we're actually going to reframe the stories themselves. And the industry is, as far as I can tell, really supportive of that. Like there is a there is a sea change, and it's because of the like decades of trailblazers who demanded this over and over and over and over again, and it's finally broken through. And I'm very fortunate to be there with it. I cannot wait to see it. I'm curious when an announcement like this comes out, especially one like this that's like shrouded in a lot of mystery. Are you getting texts from friends trying to sort of <laughs> yeah. get information out of you? Yeah, it's really funny. It's real. Well, I have a lot of texts from friends who are like, are you fucking kidding me? I've seen you like 17 times in the past month. You were just lying the whole time. And I'm like, no, I, I, I just couldn't. It was, it was lying by omission. I just couldn't. But it's, it's really intense because people care. You know what people care about? People care about superhero movies. That's what, that's what I said to Jason the night that that came out. I walked into the kitchen. I was like, I know what people care about now. If we can get people to care about the 2020 election, like they care about superhero movies, we will be in good shape. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> now, you recounted a snippet of a story to David Itzkoff in a 2019 New York Times profile about spotting- Love that, David Itzkoff. Yes, oh my God. Also, uh, really great on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and True. in that, Yeah, and in that story, you talked about spotting Tilda Swinton, the great Tilda Swinton, at a Golden Globes party early in your career and a yes. conversation that ensued. Can you recall that conversation? 
Yes. So as far as I remember it, it was so many thousands of years ago now, but I was already freaking out because I was happened to somehow be standing in the midst of Catherine Keener and Tilda Swinton. So my body was like exploding. My heart was melting and I was, I, I just was breathlessly trying not to make a fool of myself, but I had the chance to introduce myself to both of these heroes. I mean, I had become a casting assistant early, early in life because of Katherine Keener and love everything that she's ever done. And then here's Tilda. And I, I do this thing with women who I really admire where I always like fall at their feet. I don't do it on purpose, but I've noticed this about myself. I'm like, why have I found myself once again, like prostrated, but I do this. And so I fell at Tilda's feet and I was like, Tilda, it's so nice to meet you. I'm Olivia. I'm just kind of starting out in this business, but like, wow, it's crazy. Anything you can share, anything. And she was so gracious because what an annoying question. Like, is there anything more annoying than like, <laughs> hi, can you give me general life wisdom about my own career of which you know nothing? But she said, ah, oh, she said to be a young ingenue, she said, I don't envy you. It must be very hard to be responsible for trying to embody that level of idealized kind of perfection. That that's what these young women, these ingenues are sort of saddled with. The idea of like, be everyone's dream girl. And she said, it gets so much more interesting when you get older. She said, it gets so much more interesting. And I was so struck by this because I think there is this false stereotype that Hollywood actresses are all desperate to stay young. And it's like the all about Eve kind of like, if only we could be young and fresh forever. Like I wanna be 20 and new and yet that is such bullshit. And, and, and Tilda really nailed it when she just, she made me so excited for the long journey. So, so kind of relaxed into like the path ahead knowing like this is not the pinnacle. This is not the goal right now. And I think that's important for, for actors to realize like there's this, um, there's this focus on youth in the industry and yet that's just truly the beginning. I mean, of course, there's the business side of it that might see it differently in terms of marketability. I mean, that's that whole side of the industry that's warped. But in terms of these personal experience, she nailed it. And it's been very true ever since. But I just was like, oh, I mean, there's one thing though, when Tilda Swinton tells you like, it's gonna get so much more interesting. I'm like, yeah, but it's, that's you because you're the most interesting person yeah. right? <laughs> from, from whatever planet from which you hail. Yeah. But it is like, I think of it often because I think about how, how we can be better at, as mentors, getting rid of the stereotypes that hold people back. Like for instance, one thing that I think about a lot is getting rid of the hero narrative um, when it comes to creating things. Like award shows hold up the hero narrative. When you grow up and you see directors standing up at the Oscars and holding an Oscar and they're receiving all this praise and it's this majorly significant event, your young brain tells you they are superheroes. And if you don't already know how to do everything involved with that job, like it's not something you can do and they must be special and they, there's no way you can get there. If we were honest about this business, and about how collaborative it is, and that there is no one person who can do everything, then I think more people would be included into the process. More women, more people of color, more differently abled people. Like you don't have to be a superhero to be a director. And you just have to really love storytelling and you have to love, you have to be a good communicator and you have to be really good at bringing geniuses together and creating an environment conducive to their best work. And like, holding that and keeping it sacred and safe and protecting it. But I mention this because I think like so often there's this idea of, of um, the wisdom we pass on and like, you know, I think about how we can be more effective and like useful with that, like real, real tangible advice to give people. And I, I'm all about that. I start, I'm thinking a lot about how like I want to start posting the earlier parts of the process of development. So people say like, I can do this, I can do that. Like, like uh, lookbooks, decks, like how you actually get a job. Mm. This is what you put together. This is what you have at your pitch meeting. 
here's how it goes. And then here are the people you hired to help you put the next product of the process together. I think if we were just honest, we would include more people. I, I think the hero narrative is something we cling to because it makes us feel special in success. But it's if we're serious about opening the industry up, like that's a that's a big part of it, I think. This makes me think a lot about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uses her social media. Yes. Because so yes. much of what I think she does is sort of exposing this idea of like this government being some sort of... Uh, highfalutin, high-level thinking, and that we couldn't possibly know the decisions that get made. And she's sort of showing, this is my daily agenda. This is how I get to work. This is how I decorate my office. This is the budget. And I think stuff yeah. like that, not only destigmatizing, but just sort of inviting everyone into a process that's actually quite unremarkable, but just made to seem remarkable. Absolutely. The demystification of that will lead to so many young people thinking, I'm going to do that. I'm going to run for office. Look at that. I can do that. I can take that step. I can take the next step. It's a really amazing thing what she's done. I mean, she started that so early. Just think about her little like Instagram lives in her kitchen. It's just really changed everything. Yeah. Hard left, but I want to talk about the movie Tron. Woo! Okay. <laughs> you were 25 at the time. And in an interview with Vanity Fair, years later, you revealed a yearning to have more control over your character's storyline. Were those desires something you felt comfortable articulating at the time or you sort of years later were able to come to that realization? You know, I was comfortable at the time and I'm now amazed knowing more about the process myself. Let me be as vocal as I was because I now know that for an actress to show up and be like, hey guys, I've got some rewrites. And I really think that this costume, I have a redesign on the costume. Just imagine now that the studio heads at Disney when I said androgynous must have been like, <laughs> is it too late to fire her? Like burn the contract. But they were so receptive. Joe Kaczynski, who directed that film, and Sean Bailey, who produced it, who's now one of the higher ups at Disney, they let me into that process. And I we sat around tables in Vancouver where I was empowered to speak my mind and give thoughts. And I remember saying, like, I really want this character to be like a Joan of Arc character. And they let me go on and on about Joan of Arc and like Jules Verne. And like, it was really very gracious of them. And I think it has a lot to do with why I then took myself seriously to eventually start directing because they did allow themselves to demystify that process. They did show me like, oh, here we are. We're going to make decisions and then we'll figure out how to implement them. And you're a part of that. And so I think it was a combination of me being a little bit clueless. So I didn't know it wasn't an option. So I just like barged in there with ideas and then being receptive to it. But it was a crazy experience because, you know, that world, like, again, it's like, it's like the superhero world and the sci-fi world, but Tron is being this beloved sort of entity, this, this movie that is a part of so many people's childhoods. And then to step into that and create a new character and, and have the fans embrace that character, I started to feel like, wait a minute, maybe I'm onto something. Like, maybe I'm okay at creating characters. Maybe this is something I could do. Now, it sounds like that was an environment in which the, the higher-ups made you feel comfortable in sort of speaking out and using your yeah. voice. But on the theme of, like, advice for young actors, what advice would you have to an actor in a position, specifically women or minority actors, that feel like there's more to the character that they're playing that's not being explored, and they perhaps want to voice that, but also don't want to make the director feel... Yeah. You know, I feel like it's a, it's a fine line. What advice do you have in sort of using your voice to get the things that you want out of a role? Yeah, that's great. I love that question because like in the vein of giving real tangible advice, I think that's super useful because something that I would have loved to hear as a young actor is that the director who's hired you has 100 million things going on. They are picking everything from the smallest detail of the production design to the score, to the, the last rewrites on the script, to, to casting, to dealing with the studios. Like they have so many balls in the air that actually a gift you can give a director is ideas for your own character of which you are thinking about more than anyone else. Like actors, your responsibility when you're cast is to overthink this character completely. You're the only one looking at this character from every angle, inside and out. What you can do is give tangible ideas, pitch real thoughts and ideas. Don't just vaguely complain there isn't enough 
And I think that's a mistake a lot of people make, probably because they don't want to overstep boundaries and say like, well, it's not my script. I can't say like, I wish this character, you know, had a past life or I wish that that's a weird choice. But like, I, I wish this character was like, oh, I don't know, like had, was in love with their best friend or is a veteran or has a limp. There's all sorts of things actors come up with and not all of them are good, but still coming up with real tangible ideas and then pitching them and being bold and saying, look, I don't know what you have in mind in terms of the larger kind of mosaic here, but I've now given a ton of thought to this character. I've listened to these podcasts, read these articles, read these books, watched these movies, listened to these songs, and it's given me these ideas and I want to share them with you. And more often than not, the director will say like, whoa, thank you, because I truly didn't have the time to examine that character from every angle like you did. And those ideas are great. And I'm going to take three out of seven of them. And here we go. Now we're collaborating, which is so much better than just saying like, I don't like my character. I think she's too boring. It's like, then you're just going to be met with, that's nothing's going to happen. But if you really come up with real choices, I, I remember when I worked in casting, Mally Finn was my boss, who was this casting director. And I mentioned this because she had super, super high standards for actors when they came in for auditions. Everyone had to be completely off book and people had to make choices. That seems like a, an obvious thing, but so many people would come into, I was her like lowly assistant number five in the back, but people would come in and just read the lines and stay as vague as possible so that they could maybe fit it in a sort of amorphous way into whatever thing you the director wanted or what the cast director wanted and it was such a revelation for me because she was like guys don't come in here and just be a blank slate make some choices we're gonna hire you based on your choices so anyways I think the same thing goes for like if you've been hired and you look at your character and you're like there is more to this I'm sure of it make some real choices and bring those ideas to the table because I think more often than not you'll be heard I love tangible advice. That's like so helpful. Yes. I believe Matt had a question for you about one of your early directing projects. I do. So I am a longtime Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. I've oh, been playing yeah. their music for my whole life. And I was curious what it was like to come in and direct the video for Dark Necessities for a band that it was established. The Getaway was one of their later albums. And if there was anything you learned from that music video that you have now applied in later directing? Absolutely. The big lesson I learned was real artists like those guys who are such professionals, they commit 100% every single time. I had them sing that song probably 50 times full out. I mean, no one is allowed to shoot anything in that neighborhood anymore because of how loud we were. Like we've oh, literally no. changed the zoning laws of Burbank. They're like, no more, nothing. That, that ruined everything. But because I had them sing it so many times, I had the chance to see that they committed 100% like to the tips of their fingers every single take. Every time they performed, I was like, Flea is going to somehow like throw his body through a plate glass window and Anthony Kiedis' head is going to explode. And they were all like that in every single take. And I took that and I thought, wow, if actors could commit like that, if actors could, like musicians, have no other option than to commit 100%, what would that do to performances? The same thing for dancers. Like dancers, they have to commit 100% or they could get hurt. So they fully commit. And yet with sometimes with acting, there's this tendency to to not commit fully maybe it's out of fear maybe it's maybe it's I don't know exhaustion but but I really love musicians because of their determination to commit that fully every time and that video also allowed me to understand just how gosh like working with non-actors but giving them storytelling framework and then allowing them to play within it is so something I love. I love, I mean, I love actors who are trained, but there's something about non-actors who are just really open. And we had these incredible four women in that video who were skateboarders, some of them professional and some of them unprofessional, but just so brilliant. And they were so available and brave. And it was during that video that I was like, I have to make book smart because I found myself in the edit wishing that we could linger on just the subtle relationships between the girls who were showing each other scars and helping each other up and not talking about boys. <laughs> they were like, just 
they were bonding over like being badass and bonding over different things. And I, I remember just thinking like, oh, that's, that's the story I want to tell. So yeah, that video was a game changer for me. And also just like so, so insane because as a child of the nineties, I was like, yeah. what? And then, you know, I literally had a scene where I had the skaters coming under the bridge in the LA river. And I was like, yeah. you see what I did there guys? <laughs> see what I did? And they were like, yes, we, <laughs> yes, we, we know, <laughs> we get it. That's so great. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. That's lovely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's talk about your social media, which I am a tremendous fan of. So on March 15th on Instagram, you posted a caption that read, quote, do your part and stay home. On April 7th, you posted encouraging your followers to donate to first responders to help protect frontline healthcare workers. On May 7th, you posted a photo of Ahmaud Aubrey writing, quote, rest in peace, Ahmaud Aubrey, a human being with a future ripped away from him by a family of white supremacists. Weeks later, on May 27th, you posted about George Floyd's murder, writing, quote, this was a blatant and disgusting cover-up to prevent accountability for their brutal act of police violence. Demand justice now. In the months since, you've posted about voter suppression, Juneteenth, Elijah McLean, Tamir Rice, and most recently you posted a photo wearing a shirt emblazoned with the words, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. And not for nothing, you have been one of the celebrities that has been a strong proponent of wearing masks, whether it's paparazzi photos of you that pop up or photos on your Instagram, which I actually think do dictate a lot of people's decisions in terms of whether or not they think it is appropriate to wear a mask. So all this wind up to say, how has the last six months changed how you use your platform? You know, it's really interesting. I think about this a lot because when I started out in this business, the idea of being political was was like a choice. Not only a choice, it was a risk. I remember being 20 years old or 19 years old and trying to kind of uh, kick up some energy about different environmental issues or, or just, you know, talking even vaguely about like political participation and, and, you know, I, I wasn't, when I look back on it, it's not like I was being particularly extremist, but that was what I was met with. The idea was like, whoa, you know, that's sort of something that's um, a little bit risky. And there was lots of pushback, like actors should stick to acting. It was like the early incarnation of shut up and dribble. But I, and I found this kind of community of people in this industry who were much, many of them older. Like I found like old, like activists who were like boomer activists who were super devoted, smart, like artists who were coming together for different causes. And that was sort of my first community. And I was always the youngest person by like 20 years. And I would sit there and be like, yeah, we have to get into like local politics or we have to talk about the fucking Amazon or we're going to go to Haiti and build a school. Like, But I, I would get, very, very passionate about these things. And I was told over and over again, like, just, you know, be wary that being political is something that is sort of a little bit unpopular. And I remember it being sort of an identifier, like it was something like, oh, Olivia, like, she's political. And I mentioned this because at the time, I would say, like, is there an option? To not, isn't living being political? Like, every dollar you spend is a vote. Like, being political is just living your life and making choices. But I think now that is how people feel in general. Now there's this awesome sense of, of responsibility that is not only in the entertainment industry, but just this young generation who feel like that is part of their 
purpose in life and they're demanding a different paradigm and they're changing the game completely. And we all feel plugged in in a way that gives us a sense of, of participation and responsibility. And it's been remarkable to kind of witness that and to see people, incredible and smart and influential people who are using their platform for good and being bold. And so for me, I had so long ago sort of already identified myself as like very progressive and outspoken. And that's sort of from which I came. I can't even take responsibility. I mean, credit for it because I was raised in that. Like I'm not one of those very brave kids who stepped away from their family and broke away from that, which I have a lot of admiration for. My mom was that way, but I grew up like with real um, progressive activist parents. But when I see people like Reese Witherspoon and Taylor Swift, and I mean, there's, it's, it's, there's many people, but it's focusing on those two for a second, like those two women coming out and saying, we have a problem with racism in this country, like that's massive. So I find myself seeing that on social media and just being like, okay, we're getting somewhere. We're changing the standards in a way that must have an effect and no longer can people dismiss, although they try just like libtard Hollywood and here you guys are and you're all living behind your gated mansions. It's always kind of wild to see those comments and to, I think I, I think I mentioned to you at one point, like sometimes I'm like, why do any of these people follow me? Cause I get so much vitriol that I'm just like, wow, why? It must make you so angry every time you see a post. Cause you're like, here she is again, spreading the ideas of like peace. this woman so I don't know it always makes me laugh this woman she's the problem it's interesting because I feel like there are two kinds of celebrities with regards to social media. I feel like there are celebrities like you who are using social media to really understand what's going on in the world and the conversations that people are having. And then I feel like there are celebrities who, and this isn't for better or for us, but just are not engaged in their own social media, have other people run it. And it sort of serves more as an avatar to their existence, sort of holding a space for them as a creative person. Right. Have you ever, do you ever have an inclination to say, I'd rather, I don't want to really be entrenched in the conversations that are happening because of, as you just mentioned, how toxic it can quickly get. It's interesting. I think one one interesting thing about social media and what it's done to people in the entertainment industry is allowed us to have a, a voice for ourselves that we can speak for ourselves. And that for me was pretty transformative. I remember when I got a Twitter handle because I wanted to raise money. That was my way. <laughs> I got into Twitter for money. No, I was raising money for this organization in Haiti. And I realized like, oh, I think I'd seen, you know, how much Twitter had done for like, you know, marches in Iran. And like, obviously we know the Arab Spring sprouted from Twitter, which is so kind of incredible. But I remember thinking like, we can do something. We can do something. We can get people's attention. And then once I was on there, I was like, huh, well, this is sort of fun, but it is interesting. Like, I think that 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 concept of having your own voice is kind of revelatory for this industry and public figures. And I think particularly women, I I just want to say that I think that there historically, there's been this kind of machine, a marketing machine that has managed the perception of actresses. And it goes way back to the studio system when it was, of course, a complete fabrication and it was all constructed and the stories that were leaked, it was all part of marketing for films. And that persisted in certain ways. And I think until social media, people didn't have a chance to be kind of multidimensional in in a lot of ways. There was a sense of like, you are an ingenue and you're a sex pot and you're the funny girl and you're, you know, and then you started to see, oh, this person is super, you know, into science. This person's really political. This person's funny and she's also really sexy. And this person's into fashion, but they're also into, you know, politics. And, and I just think that in, even though we know that social media is a simulation and we all, it, it, everything does, of course, get compressed and reduced, there simultaneously is this effect of allowing for multidimensionality within people who before were sort of pegged as one simple thing. And I, I found that personally, I found people saying like, eh, until I saw your whatever, your Twitter, your Instagram, I thought you were this. And then I kind of heard your own voice. And, and then you, your voice is what makes you a singular being. And then you realize that is the, 
that is your value. Your value is what makes you completely different. And in a very strange way, it sounds so corny, but social media has allowed for people to really express that singularity if they choose to do so. I want to talk about Booksmart. I want to talk about it specifically through the lens of its queerness. Mm. I love that this film decenters its queerness. I think mm-hmm. a lot about, not saying that I don't like a movie like A Love, Simon. I definitely think there's an mm. importance to having movies like Love, Simon without question. But for me, and this might be where I'm at in my life, but as a queer person, the idea of, I don't love the word normalizing, but the idea of normalizing queerness to a mainstream audience, I think is really important. And one of the things that I love so much about Booksmart is that it really is this story of friendship at its core, but the love story that Caitlin Deaver's character experiences is not about, it's not driven by her queerness. Her queerness is just, is the way in which she loves. Um, Mm. How much were you sort of thinking about queerness while you were concepting the film and while you were shooting the film? You know, one thing that was a through line in creating this film was honoring this new generation, I guess it's Gen Z, in how they're, you know, restructuring the paradigm and how their labels are different, their definitions, their expectations are all different. It was like my homage to them, my 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 chance to honor this generation that I believe will save us all and make up for all our horrible mistakes. Like truly, I, I, I admire them in every single way. And I think when I, every time we made a decision, I would try to look at the film through that lens and think, what's what's the way to honor the best of what we see in this young generation? And one of the best qualities of this young generation that I've seen is this, um, decentralization of your sexual identity in that way of just like yeah this is me and and I'm queer or I'm bi and it's not really what defines me but it's something that's about me and I'm this and I don't know like or you know the amount of young people I've met who are like young like you know 14 15 year old 16 year old girls who are like yeah I'm I dated my girlfriend for a while and I'm like into this guy now and I see that and I'm like wow how liberating how liberating that no one's telling you to choose and then you have to assume that identity and there's this pressure on it. And then it, like, I just thought, wow, to be a young person in that world. And I know that's not everywhere. And I know that, you know, like I said, the film was trying to highlight like what I see as the, the best of that generation and to hold it up. And it, it, to some, it might seem like a, a fantasy still because they might live in places where they don't feel any of that acceptance. And I want to honor that as well. But this film was a chance to show like, a life where you can focus on just your love for your best friend and the complications of growing up and you can be queer or not, but that's not the focus of this challenge. It's just something about you. And I was really excited because by the time I came on to the project, there had been two iterations of the script and an awesome writer named Susanna Fogel had done the pass where she had made Amy queer. And I was so excited because I, I thought, okay, now we have this. And now in our draft in, in Katie Silverman's draft, we can take that idea and, and decentralize it further and just have it be a part of the texture and, and bring in other characters, you know, like there's a character of hope. And we never say like, she's the queer girl. We say like, I don't know, this is happening tonight and who knows what happens tomorrow. And I wanted to, you know, in terms of our, our male characters, there was a little ambiguity there. And I just, I, I enjoyed the opportunity to embrace this notion that no one in the film was overly defined in any way and certainly not by their sexual identity. And it was really interesting because Beanie Feldstein, who talks a lot about how as a queer actress, being aware as we made the film of how it wasn't the focus of the story and how she loved that a straight girl and a queer girl were best friends and it wasn't this like, thing that they talked about like isn't it weird that I like boys and you don't and she she always brought that up in the most eloquent way of how that wasn't that wasn't an issue in their friendship and that a lot of movies would make it the issue like how can you understand me when we don't want to have sex with the same person yeah and, and you know it's like movies they impact the way that many of us live our lives especially as queer people because we see these signals throughout films that tell us well this is how the world perceives us at large and so I think for me growing up so often the queer depictions that I was seeing in film, the centralization of queerness as some sort of struggle or some sort of Mm. need to come out. 
I do feel like that affected me later in life. Not to say like all of the way I exist was I learned through movies, but no, it did impact me to think that, okay, wait, like not everything about my struggle in life is, it's okay to be queer and not have that be a struggle. But I think everything I was seeing in film made that so that was the case. Like I said, I love these movies like Love, Simon, and I do think they're important. And I certainly don't want to say that there are not, there are certainly parents out there that do not accept their queer children, what have you. But I think it's nice to have this variety. And so to have films like Booksmart that work to decentralize it, as you said. We loved Love, Simon. And we talked about how films like that was so, what what an opportunity to have the access to a film like that, if that's what you are identifying with and you want to find someone who feels like they can empathize with your struggle. Or if Booksmart can send the message like, you're going to be okay. There's a reality in which you're okay. And that's not a big problem. And you're living your life and your friends are your friends and everybody's different and that, that it's not a problem. And so don't be afraid because it, it's going to be fine. And it's funny because I thought about that when like early, early years when I was on the OC and the creator, Josh Schwartz told me, I was like dipping in for like three episodes and I didn't know what I was going to do on the show except music. I love music. And he was like, you're going to play a manager of a bar where there's a lot of live music. We're going to have real bands on. And I was like, ah, so cool. And I, as a joke said, if I'm going to be on the show, you better have a scene where I make out with Misha Barton or I walk. And I remember saying this as a joke and I was like, or I walk. And I looked at him and he was stunned. And he's like, who told you? And I was like, oh, really? Is that my storyline? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, that's amazing. (laughs) At the time, that was still, it's so funny now. It feels so, God. But it was, what, 2003 or something? And it it was a big deal. But I was just like, I'm just going to play her the way that I would play her, even if this hadn't been the storyline. And I'm just going to kind of play her as this this badass chick who owns a bar and somehow is in high school, but owns a bar, which I was always like, wow, (laughs) illegal and amazing. But then allow for that storyline to be something that was very, uh, I don't know, it was very sweet. It wasn't, we barely did, like now if you made that show, I think everybody is so much more bold that they would be a much, if you see it in in shows like Euphoria or, you know, people are much more bold and honest. But at the time it was our quaint attempt to open the world of these characters up. And I was I was opened up to a world where people started stopping me on the street for years afterwards saying that had a really profound effect on me coming out, which is obviously like an incredibly powerful thing to hear. So last few questions. I want to talk about your style. No, I'm never leaving. I'm never leaving. Okay, fine. You can't get rid of But we have to talk about your style. You are such a red carpet star. Obviously, I'm a fashion columnist and deep lover of fashion. You work with stylist Carla Welch, the genius, the genius Mm. that is Carla Welch, who understands fashion as storytelling. And I wanted to zero in on the Booksmart press tour. So we had Saint Laurent striped suit with a polka dot blouse, custom gold floral print etro, a deep V crimson Valentino dress. How involved were you in that press tour in terms of the styling? And were you thinking at all about wanting to present an Olivia Wilde aesthetically that was different from Olivia Wilde, the actress versus the director? Yeah, it's so interesting because that's how Carla approaches her work with her clients. That's why I love her. She doesn't just say like, wear this, I got it off the runway and I have to put it on a body. It's like, what's the story that we want to tell right now? And where do you want to be in your career? It's really like dress for the job you want. And when we thought about this press tour, you know, there was the notion of like, I'm a director, I should wear suits. And I love suits. I love wearing a suit. I enjoy it. But we had this thought of like, maybe what we'll do is subvert the expectation of like, directors wear the pants and we can say like, or they wear a fabulous Valentino gown. And we have done that at sort of every stage of my life and career. I remember when I was pregnant with my first kid, with my son, Otis, I was like, we will never touch an empire waist. We will never let it into our sights. We will wear tight, tight clothes the whole time. And at the time it was like, like it was, I think it's very common now, but I remember it being a choice. And, and there was this, I think it was a Gucci green Gucci long sleeve dress that I wore to the Golden Globes and I was really pregnant and people were like whoa you're really showing off that bump and I was like yeah because I'm saying that this is sexy and I am like unashamed here and that was all Carla so she has helped me to kind of 
make these decisions at these different stages because they are like chapters. And that's what I love about having this long standing relationship with her as a collaborator. It's so much more than styling. You know, God, I remember early, early on my first experience with a stylist and I was so terrified because it was not me at all. She was like, you gotta wear this. And if you wanna be cool and you gotta wear this and all the girls are wearing this and you have to stop wearing that because that's not cool. And I was like, I don't think I can be in this business. I don't fit here. And then Carla was this like rad little Canadian who looked exactly like Winona Ryder. Oh my God, <laughs> yes. So much. <laughs> so much. And she was like, what if we just do it our way? So I think in terms of the Booksmart Press Store, it was a really fun way to say power is not inherently unfeminine. Mm. And that is a story that we can tell through fashion. And I'm excited to get back into it with her and think of like, what's the next story yeah. we tell? And that's what fashion should be. It's it's storytelling. It's it's not conformity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So two last questions real quick. I know our time is winding down. I am a Sarah Michelle Gellar super fan. She is my absolute yes, you are. queen icon legend. She is my Meryl Streep. I just wanted to know, like, what is your familiarity with Sarah Michelle Gellar's filmography, her television work? Are you a Buffy fan? Like, where, where do you hover within the Sarah Michelle Gellar ether? You know, it's so funny. My sister was a real Buffy fan, and I sort of knew about it more through her. I remember, I think at one point they were teaching a Buffy class at Harvard, which of course you That's could now go and teach. <laughs> yeah. And I remember at that point thinking like, this is a this is a big deal. This is a cultural phenomenon that is important. And she's an important person. But in terms of my own deep knowledge of her oeuvre, it's not as deep as I would like it to be, but I trust you to help me out yeah. and educate me. We, we will work on that. <laughs> So you are currently in some stage of production on a movie yeah. that I'm underlining the word rumored to be starring not one, not two, not three, but four of my absolute favorite people. And I'm not just saying that. You can go on my social media and look at who are my most frequently posted about people. I, I'm so breathless true. just saying these names. So first up, we have Shia LaBeouf, again, rumored, Florence Pugh, Chris Pine, and the queen, the queen, Dakota <laughs> Johnson. This is my Avengers. And so- yes. I know mom is the word. Is there anything you can divulge about this film that I'm shaking mm. at the mere thought of? It's so fun. This movie, I mean, it's 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 a wild and weird and totally bizarre film that we're making. And we're making it in the time of COVID, which is wild in itself. And it's such an endeavor. It's really, it's it's something I'm so excited about in every single way, every single person who's a part of it, the people you mentioned, people who I can't mention. Uh, what can I say? What I will say is that Florence Pugh is someone who when I saw her in Midsummer, I was in Atlanta in a little theater, a little indie theater. And I uh, was, there was some friends I was working with and I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, who the fuck is this girl? She is unbelievable. She is so soulful and, and she's my Meryl Streep and it really is extraordinary to witness the birth of like one of the finest actresses of mm. this and any generation like I am just continuously blown away by her and in terms of like her as a human being talk about like authenticity and intelligence I could go on for a long time but she is our star and I am very excited for the world to see what we're doing with her. And this movie rests on her back and she is just doing such an incredible job. And everyone else is just, uh, it, you know what's wild, I will say? A lot of these people that I now get to direct are my peers, some of whom I've known for a long time and we all came up together as actors. I mean, Chris Pine, I've known forever. And it's so incredible to have their trust. Like there's... One thing with directing young people in Booksmart, I was like, my children come to me, my pups. Um, but there is a there is a, a very significant sense of of honor when people that you came up with will look to you and trust you. Mm. So that's what I'm feeling intensely right now with this movie. It's like, wow, you guys, thank you. <laughs> I will take care of you. And this is this movie's gonna be fucking batshit. It's nuts. I cannot wait. I have a story for Paper Magazine coming out on Monday about Chris Pine's quarantine fashions, just because- You have really done outdone yourself with, I mean, he's, 
He's honestly the most fashionable mask wearer and shorts oh wearer. God. Yes. There is. And he's truly like that. Like Chris Pine is who you want him to be. He is that person through and through. He is basically like a very zen. He's the dude from Lebowski. He lives as the mm. dude. And so fucking smart. So he has a flip phone. Can't get him on Instagram. It's a shame. He's not seeing any of your beautiful posts because he has well, a flip phone. Ugh, you know. <laughs> well, we will all be seeing this film and I cannot wait for more announcements to come out and production sales and what have you. Olivia, I want to thank you so much. And I just want to quickly say before you go, having someone of your magnitude take the time to come on here today is going to undoubtedly bring a new audience to the show. And it's very, very meaningful to me that you would take the time to do this. And I just am so grateful. And it's such a, it's such fun to watch you and your career just take off and to know that you are a good human underneath it all oh thank you so much i'll take that with me and internalize <laughs> it for the whole day no i this was a blast thank you guys for having me my pleasure thank you again all right. all right have a good one take care Bye. same time next week same time yes. every day <laughs> yes we'll see you then see you tomorrow Bye. shut up evan <laughs> shut up evan shut up evan Evan, shut up. Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm with associate production by Ryan Killian Krause and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters without whom none of this would be possible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.